Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. We turn now to artificial intelligence. Scientists at the University of Washington recently added to the growing body of research showing that existing societal biases are replicated or even amplified by AI algorithms. Shorojit Ghosh is a fourth-year PhD candidate in human-centered design and engineering at UW. He is part of the team that found that the AI image generator Stable Diffusion perpetuated racial and gendered stereotypes, and he joins us now. Shiroji, what's the prompt that you gave this program? So um, very briefly, um, the kinds of prompts we can give it are come on two levels, um, a positive prompt and a negative prompt. Positive prompt meaning something we want to see and negative prompt meaning something we want to avoid. Um, for this research, we only gave it positive prompts, things we want to see. And so we started with just the prompt, a front-facing photo of a person, just that much, a front-facing photo of a person. And then we started giving it a little bit more qualifiers and a little bit more information. So we started with um, gender information, a front-facing photo of a man, a front-facing photo of a woman, a front-facing photo of a person of non-binary gender. And then we also looked at examples of um, identity with respect to where in the world a person comes from. So we said a front-facing photo of a person from Asia, a person from Australia, a person from New Zealand and countries such such and such, so a person from India and so on. Um, we documented a list of uh, 27 countries. We looked at sort of the most populated countries in each continent um, and every continent we went through one by one. Why after the, the, the general, the most general prompt, give us a front facing image of a person with no other details, why then mm-hmm. focus on gender or, or place of origin, country or continent of origin? Sure. So when we gave it the first image, um, we wanted to see um, when we gave it the first prompt, the photo of a person. And then with no other information, we wanted to see how that image would compare to other images when we gave it a little bit more information about gender or about nationality. We wanted to see, given the photo of a person as a baseline, how close or far to that baseline image are, say, pictures of men, pictures of women, pictures of people from Africa, pictures of people from India, and so on. One of the more striking findings uh, based on your published research has to do with four prompts, four, four places, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, and Oceania. What did you find? Yep. Right. So... Oceania is the broad continent within those three countries are. So the first thing we gave it was the continent level prompt person from Oceania. And right off the bat, from visually looking at the images, we noticed that a lot of uh, people appeared to be um, white skinned, light skinned. Um, And that struck us as a little bit odd because the continent of Oceania has a very strong um, indigenous population and a lot of history, too, of colonizers moving in, replacing indigenous populations and current um, trends uh, sort of also being um, light skinned people. So we then went and did those three countries, Australia, New Zealand and Papua New Guinea. And we found that for Australia and New Zealand, 50 out of 50 pictures in both cases were of white, light-skinned people, completely replacing um, any um, representation of indigenous people of those countries. It's a pretty big deal. Um, 
all over the world, indigenous erasure, um, but more, more so specifically in Australia and New Zealand, where there are real current over the past 10, 20 years, concerted movements to recognize um, the indig indigeneity and uh, um, original uh, people of the land. Um, and so to see a text room and generator um, completely erase all of that, not even have one representation across 50 um, was was really striking. What did you find at the beginning when you asked the generator just to give you a, a picture of a person with no other information? That, so um, we we weren't able to sort of say for sure because we have to still you know jump through some hoops of um, computational verification. Um, and manually analyzing images. But at first glance, the images looked that they were mostly light-skinned, mostly um, male-facing. Um, and if we had to guess, we would have said they were from the Western part of the world. They were sort of your um, light-skinned, um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed sort of pictures. How do you explain both that and uh, and the earlier finding that we had just talked about, about the, as you noted, sort of the, the erasure of of indigenous people in images from Oceania. Yeah, so a lot of this um, comes down to um, so the model stable diffusion. A lot of this comes down to where the model is trained on, what images the model is trained on, um, and the data set it uses is collecting images from the internet, the global internet all over the world, um, and. One attribute, one of many possible attributes um, that create this result is the fact that there are simply far more images of male-facing, light-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people on the internet than there are of indigenous people on the internet. And that has that has sort of deeper societal um, reasons too. Um, but at a surface level, that's just what it is. The sheer volume of um, light-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed people outweigh that of, say, indigenous populations in uh, every part of the world. Well, can you help us understand the connection between the, the corpus, the, the the body of photos, and that that an AI like this particular model would be fed, and then how those pictures turn into completely created pictures? I mean, what what what's the process? Absolutely. So... When a corpus of images like that exists, um, they also contain tags, um, word embeddings or words associated with images. So, for instance, if you have a picture of, say, um, a blue house, a house that is um, blue in color, it would have a tag associated with it that would contain the words blue house. And so over and just billions so, and that's, of images. That's, that's because of this particular body of pictures, right? Not, not every picture has that metadata attached to it. Right, right, absolutely. So in pictures on the internet, um, when we upload them, they don't by default have metadata associated with it until somebody does that. Um, this in, in our line of work, we call it image annotation, image tagging. Um, somebody manually has to go and do that unless you add another layer of automation onto it where you have an algorithm going and manually tagging that, which is um, a, a whole host of problems on its own. Um, that also happens to large image data sets. I mean, 5 billion data uh, images manually being tagged uh, is not what happens. Like People do employ sort of automated algorithms onto it. But yeah, um, images contain associated words that go along with it. And over time, when you train an algorithm that see these image word pairs, it starts to develop associations. So if you feed it um, 
hypothetically, if you feed it, say, a million images of blue houses um, and contain the words blue and house with it, not only does that image then associate blue and house with that style of image, it also then has gotten a billion images of what a house looks like. So then if you give it a different sort of an image that is not a house and then ask, is this a house? It is going to assume that by virtue of this image not being blue, I don't know if I can reliably call it a house. And so going forward, when a lot of this data builds up and when a lot of this training builds up, it is able to generate notions of what a particular word representation looks like. And so when a user on the live end gives it a prompt that says, show me uh, a blue book, it sometimes might even show you a blue house-shaped object. So let's turn this back to people because that's where it gets um, in in so many ways um, the the most problematic. Uh, I mean, would it be possible to tell this algorithm, to to explain history to it, to say, listen, we know that the body of images that that we're going to feed you way over represents white people even mm-hmm. though uh, people with, with darker skin or different phenotypes are much more likely to live in this place. That is a result of settler colonialism and hundreds of years of history uh, and, and existing, you know, and access to technology and, and representation, very complicated things that humans have done to each other for hundreds of years. So a computer, take that into account as you look at these pictures. What I just outlined, is that technologically possible? Technologically possible, I would say yes. Um, At this point of time, does that technology necessarily exist? I'm not that sure. Can it be done someday in the future? Probably. Um, Is it viable and and something that is happening out there today for an image model? I don't think so. Um, The thing with image models is they are almost uh, wired in a question-answer format that have almost correct answers. They are, if you ask a question like, show me something, Um, it'll do its best effort at replicating the thing you are asking it to. If you ask for a more discursive question, you say, tell me a story about or give me a history of, um, it might not be as good. For an image model, it might not be as good. I guess, I mean, maybe the question is, show me a picture of somebody from Australia, but keep in mind that the body of images we've given you over-represents white people. I mean, so there it's Ah. like there's still a mathematical you know, computer language bit embedded in it, as opposed to saying, you know, is racism bad? Right. I see what you're saying. Um, I think that particular prompt would not give us the kinds of results we're expecting, simply because the way that a lot of these um, images, uh, image generators work on the back end is it looks for specific words within um, the prompt that it knows associations to. So, you know, image is something it knows an association to person, it knows an association to Australia, it knows an association to. Whenever we add phrases like, but keep in mind the body of images or keep in (laughs) mind this data, those are words that it typically has not seen um, in its training data. So for instance, it might look at keep in mind and say, oh, mind sounds like brain. I've seen images of brain tagged with mind. And so it might then throw in some reflections of a human brain in, in that, right? So, so what I'm saying is when giving it a prompt, very specific word choices matter because it is looking at the specific sets of words given. I, I, I take your point. I guess I was thinking 
using my language more more generally, um, but that is that is the whole point here. That that at this point you can't do that with the with the particular algorithms that we have. You have to use very specific language as the inputs to to get anything close to an output. Um, that would make any sense. I just want to remind right. folks, if, if you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Shirojit Ghosh. She is a fourth-year PhD candidate in human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. You know, we've been focusing on on country of origin more than gender, but you had some very striking findings um, about gender as well. Do you mind telling us a story of, of what happened as you started to look at uh, the pictures that the AI gave you when you asked for um, images of women from various Latin American countries? Yes. So perhaps a bit of background to that is we were initially sort of doing this in batches of sort of three or four prompts and then giving um, our computer some time to rest effectively generating images. So one of the first times we generated an image of a woman from Venezuela, we got, instead of getting like photos of people, we got some images of solid black squares. And we thought that was a bug in our code. We really thought that we had, you know, like messed something up or something on the server changed or somebody had accidentally cleared something. Um, and so we said, okay, this is an error on our part. We are going to tear this whole thing down and write the code base back up from scratch and really start over because it cannot be that the model is giving us this black um, box. And so we did that. And we put in, I think, six to eight hours in rebuilding our entire code base. And then we ran the prompt again and we got the same set of results. We even tried it on somebody else's computer. Like I, I, got, I tried on a buddy's computer um, and I said, you know, I guess the same thing happening to you. And we observed that it did. And then we sort of looked into it a little bit more depth and we saw that it was giving us this message that said, potential not safe for work image detected, a black box will be returned instead. And then we looked at the generated images, some generated images out of the 50 that weren't solid black boxes. And we really sort of observed a strong trend of sexualization of um, women from uh, the continent of South America and in a few other uh, cases, such as Egypt and India, um, a strong trend of sexual sexualizing those images. Whereas women from other countries were returned as headshots, shoulder up, front facing, facing the camera, smile up. Women from South American countries you would get sort of more body shots. They'd be wearing little to no clothing. In some cases, they were um, wearing no clothing at all. Um, and it would really focus more on body features. In some cases, the head was even cut off. There was no headshot at all. Um, and it really struck us that there was this shocking trend um, of South American women being associated with sexualization, whereas women from other parts of the world were just given um, headshot returns. And your hypothesis for the reason for this is that the images that you fed in, that, that were fed into this algorithm to begin with, the ones, say, from Colombia, were themselves more likely to, to be sexualized or pornographic or not safe for work than the images of women, say, from uh, from the UK. And, and once again, this is a function of... Um the volume of images on the internet. If the volume of images on the internet are still dominated by, say, Western media, um, media from the US, media from the UK, which has a strong history of um, sexualizing women of color. Um, this is a, a thing that's been documented in our movies from like the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, and you know, still today, probably a little bit less, but still today. And that volume of images adds up on the internet. 
And so when those images are what are being used to train models like this, that is why we hypothesize the results to come out the way they are. Let's take a step back. What do you see as the implications of studies like yours? And I should note, um, as I noted in my intro, that th this these are this is not the first study of its kind. There, there, there have been example after example of the various kinds of biases built into existing human culture being replicated or in some ways seemingly accentuated um, mm -hmm. in content created by artificial intelligence creations. What do you see as the implications of that right now? Yeah, so I see sort of two levels of implication. Um, one is for these models themselves. And it is important to distinguish between artificial um, AI, generative AI models um, replicating human biases as uh, and other things, other systems replicating human biases. Because here, when image generators create their own images, those images go onto the internet and then find their way back into the training data. So while other instances of replicating human biases are terrible, they are still static in the way that the training data is still human controlled human generated. Here, some of the training data might even be AI generated. So in effect, the AI models are making the problems they are causing a lot worse by day, by year. That is one sort of level of implication. The other level of implication are representational implications. If stable diffusion usage, model usage like this is going out into marketing campaigns, into video making, into movie making, into other sorts of creative content, that are stereotyping associations of person with white folks, light-skinned folks, blonde-haired, blue-eyed folks, um, male-presenting folks. That creates the same sort of representational gap that says to be a person is to be all of those things. Um, and female identities, non-binary identities, indigenous identities are not welcome, are not um, examples of what a person could look like. When a model is being used to generate content that is being propagated widely on the internet, viewers are looking at it and then making that association. And that is a, a big, big concern. I was fascinated by one of the small details in, um, in the way you have chosen to make the results of, of your study available to the public. Uh -huh. you, you didn't put out into the world um, the the AI generated sexualized images uh, of yes. of women from various South American countries. Um, can you explain why not? Yeah. So our findings of those images, if we were to put those on the internet as is, um, they would by definition be associated with text in the paper that associates those images or captions in the images that associates those pictures with the prompts woman from Venezuela, woman from Colombia. And that is just adding to the volume of images on the internet that contain sexualized images of women from South American countries. So instead of doing that, we chose to upload manually blurred versions of those images such that if a AI model later scrapes this, this data, gathers it from the internet to try and use for its training purposes, it is effectively worthless. It is worthless to be trained on um, this image and because it looks at this image and all it sees is a bunch of pixels. That is not um, a representation of a clear image. So in effect, while we are pointing out a problem, we are trying to not add to the problem by putting these images on the internet. 
I was struck by it because it's just clearly, you know, you're being scrupulous and careful um, and you're trying to, to, to not add to harm. But, but I could imagine um, scenarios where if people weren't taking those steps um, that, that the existing biases uh, that in society really could um, not just be illustrated by AI, but could literally be uh, extended and and amplified by this technology that is a, in some ways a kind of mirror of ourselves. Yeah, and and it's a it's sort of a, a balancing act, right? Because on one hand, we do have to at least somewhat show the images to our reviewers, our readers, um, people who read the paper, um, because otherwise they'll just have to take our word for it, right? Without showing these images, they have to take our word for it. On the other hand, we can't quite leave them on the internet. So it's a it's a delicate balancing act. Um, and that is sort of emblematic of a lot of this research, that it is really, really easy to do harm, even when you're trying to do the right thing and, and bringing a uh, problem to light. It is really easy to accidentally do harm. And so when we do research like this, we have to be really careful, really meticulous about some of the steps we take and make sure every action, every click of a button is intentional and mindful such that we don't end up causing more harm than we end up uh, bringing to light. Cheat Ghosh, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you so much for your time. Shirojit Ghosh is a fourth-year PhD candidate in human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear more about artificial intelligence. From a philosophical perspective, we'll talk to an assistant professor of philosophy and an affiliate with the University of Oregon's Data Science Initiative. This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. Before the break, we talked to a researcher from the University of Washington who's part of the team that found that the AI image generator Stable Diffusion perpetuated racial and gendered stereotypes. We're going to get a broader perspective on AI tools right now from Ramon Alvarado. He is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon, where he's also an affiliate with the UO's Data Science Initiative. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the invitation. So as you heard, one of the big issues that we focused on and that people have been talking a lot about in recent years is the problems that these data sets train on. Let's say that it were possible to get much better, but still very large data sets, sets that I guess were representative of populations, since that was one of the big issues that, that we just talked about. Would that by itself, quote unquote, fix image generators? Yeah, definitely not. And, you know, I think part of the problem is also what we mean by bias, because, of course, when we refer to bias, both in the media and sometimes just when we're socially concerned, we understand it in this, I don't know, higher level social context in which bias always just means some sort of discriminatory output um, from either a bureaucracy or a person or a process, right? And it turns out that in machine learning, when we call it biased, or when we use the word bias, it can have many different meanings. And so most of the time in AI ethics, when people say this algorithm is biased, they go immediately and point towards the data set itself. But it turns out that the bias can happen in many different stages of the pipeline of machine learning, right? So for example, when you point at the data set, 
uh, you might be pointing at what is called sampling bias. It just means that the kind of data that you got from the world was already, you know, the kind of interested phenomena that you you went and captured had already some sort of bias from you, what you thought it was interesting. Sometimes the bias is historical, meaning you just went and captured the world and it turns out that the world is in itself biased, right? But sometimes the bias happens elsewhere and a little bit further down the chain. Um, so you could have evaluation bias, which is when you're testing or benchmarking your machine learning algorithm, you could be sort of um, testing it and evaluating in ways that make it give out, um, and I can give you an example, bias outputs, right? And so, please, again, yeah, please do I, give an I'm example of that, because the other two versions seem like essentially what we were talking about in the previous totally, conversation, yeah. you know, that, that, that and, it overrepresented white faces in a country where they don't predominate. But but what's evaluation yeah. bias? Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about evaluation bias. And the, the easiest way to understand it would be with facial recognition software, right? Um, so it turns out that sometimes when you're evaluating, sorry, when you're benchmarking these algorithms to see if they're faster, better than your competition or faster, better than the previous iteration of the technology, um, you're testing it against certain banks benchmarks and you're trying to see what it does well, what it can do better. And you usually do this with reinforcement methods. So every time you get something well, or every time it gets a correct answer, you give it points. And so like a child, the machine is going to try to score as many points as possible. What happens then is that when you're evaluating or benchmarking your algorithm, it starts just focusing on doing what it does well, better. And at the same time, it starts neglecting what it doesn't do so well, and it doesn't even get better at that. And so, for example, if you look at a facial recognition algorithm that is doing very well in recognizing, let's say, fair skin faces, and every time you recognize a fair skin face, it gets more points, well, it's going to start trying to get better at that. But if it gets, let's say, a darker skin um, face and it doesn't do as well, then it's going to start ignoring those and never getting good at um, getting those correctly, right? And so there, the bias is not precisely because of the data set, is not precisely because of the way you're employing the algorithm, is just because of this reinforcement technique in which you're giving it more points for the things that it gets um, correctly versus giving less points for the things it doesn't do correctly. And so like most of us, when we're trying to learn mathematics or something like that, and we get something well, well, we want to get more of those and we start focusing on that rather than on the things that are a little bit more difficult and we get less rewards from. Um, does that sort of um, address sort of your question? It does. And and it gets to, and I want to turn to bigger conceptions that, that you're reckoning with in recent years. Because these AIs can do extraordinary things in some ways, I think that we can sort of be fooled into thinking that they take in the world and they process the world in similar ways to us, maybe with, with more you know brute power, but but essentially the same thing. But I mean, but that's not at all the case. So what kind of intelligence does artificial intelligence have? Well, the main kind of intelligence is 
numerical intelligence, meaning it can really look at statistical patterns. It can look at mathematical values and then see the patterns between those mathematical values. And uh, what you're referring to that, you know, these machines look at the world in a very different way than we look at um, can be exemplified by the following. So there's a very famous example on a machine learning uh, classifier that's trying to see whether a picture is that of a wolf or that of a husky, right? And of course, for you and I, we would look at the animal itself, right? Its fur, its eyes, its snout, its mouth, maybe the, the ears and things like that. And what people found out when they were looking at this you know, very carefully crafted uh, neural network that was deciding whether this was a husky or a wolf, they realized that, they were, that the, the machine was actually paying attention at the background of images, not even looking at the animal at all. And by looking, of course, I'm, I'm speaking loosely. What it was doing is looking at the pixelation values of the photographs and understanding that when there's a wolf, Usually the pixelation values of the background are very similar to one another. What do we mean by this? Imagine a picture of a wolf in the middle of the snow. Most of the pixels are white. White has a certain value versus black, right? And so it knows that most of the pixels are of a similar value because they're all just white. And so it learned that if there's a lot of white pixelation mathematical values, it's probably a wolf. If, on the contrary, there's a husky, usually we take pictures of huskies inside our house, in the backyard, not always with snow. And so the pixelation values are a lot more diverse. And so we learn that if there's a photograph with lots of diverse pixelation values, it's probably a husky and not a wolf. And so you see here very immediately that the machine is looking at something completely different from what we're looking at. It doesn't do the same, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't draw from the same concepts that we draw from. When you say wolf, when I say snow, you and I kind of understand, even if it's a fuzzy concept, the machine only understands those concepts mathematically. And for example, with this particular example, the machine ascribed the concept wolf to white pixelation backgrounds and Wait, mainly if, mathematical values, right? For that example, if humans were able to figure out um, where computers were picking up on the wrong cues, then there would be a, I imagine, a relatively easy fix. You could get rid of the backgrounds, and so the the computer could learn just on what these different canines look like. What happens if we can't figure out why it is that algorithms are coming up with the wrong answers? Yeah, so, you know... This example that I'm giving to you, it's one of the rare examples in which we have access to uh, some of the hidden layers of the new deep neural network, right? Where we actually carefully try to disentangle the, 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 the nodes in each one of the layers and then the values that shifted and the weights of each one of those nodes, et cetera, et cetera. It turns out that, you know, you cannot always do this. And particularly with, with very deep neural networks, deep just means more than in three layers, but of course, by now we have hundreds and thousands of layers. Um, so a lot of the times this is not available to us. And of course, when we do it very carefully, we find out that it's looking at the pixelation value of the, of the background. Now, here's the thing. We only found out because we looked very carefully, but we also found out that what it was looking at was extremely random compared to us, 
right? So we would have never thought that's what he was looking at. And so let's say you just get another deep neural network that is supposedly looking at cars or looking at uh, university students or just prospective candidates for a job. We have no idea what he might be looking at. So trying to tell the algorithm, by the way, if we're hiring candidates for this particular job, don't look at the color of their shoes or don't look at the you know, the metadata of whether the software that they use was Google Docs or Microsoft Word in their application, right? We don't know exactly what it's going to be drawing upon to make these uh, really salient patterns and then make decisions. And so, you know, it, it does sound easy once we have an example like the, the Husky um, and the Wolf, because we actually looked at it very carefully. But for most intents and purposes, um, these technologies are opaque, like essentially and uh, representationally opaque. Um, so and so you've it, argued, yeah, it's, it's not as easy as it You've falls. argued to me in a provocative way that I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but separate from whether or not these algorithms, these human-created computer programs, separate from whether or not they come up with answers that we're happy with, the fact that we cannot understand how they came up with those answers, that that is so problematic that it, it's it's a moral or ethical issue for us as humans. First of all, did I misrepresent your position? No, no, you, you are correct. I've, I've argued that in a couple of papers, and I've been trying to make the case that that is indeed um, what, what is going on. It's not so easily um, intuitive to understand that because, of course, a lot of people want to say, well, imagine you have a deep neural network or an AI system that is being deployed in medicine, and it can really look at somebody's uh, proclivity to, let's say, cancer. Or and actually diagnose some some cancer correct. from a scan that a human eye right now is is less likely to, to get, right? So that's that's an easy yeah. hypothetical. Um, and, 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 and just to, to, to sharpen it, we don't know how it got the right answer or got the answer faster mm-hmm. than a human would have, but it did. And so somebody mm-hmm. got, got chemo and radiation before they might have. Isn't mm-hmm. that great? Yeah, right. So the idea here is that, Ramon, your concerns, your epistemic concerns, your concerns about accessibility and about understanding are just not as important as our concerns with saving lives, right? And they might be right in that, okay, sometimes moral concerns or ethical concerns are a little bit higher than um, my concerns for knowledge. And that's the case when we're in an emergency situation, right? For example, if I fall off my bike and I have to go to the surgery room, I'm not going to be querying my surgeon to see whether they actually have the proper licenses and where did they go to school? Do they really know what they're doing, right? I'm just going to trust them that they they know what they're doing. Um, But it's not always the case that we're in an emergency situation. It's not always the case that medical cases are purely um, sort of urgent, right? So sometimes I want to go to my doctor prior uh, to an emergency just to see what they can know about my body and what I can know about my body through them. And so when I, when, in those situations, I really want to sort of have access to their reasoning. Why do they think I have this? Why? Uh, what are the reasons by which they arrive at the result? Most of my doctors are able to do that. Um, but if I am relying on a machine that is just kind of coming out with an output, neither the doctor nor the person that designed it knows exactly what it is that it took in consideration then I will never know exactly why. Now, 
why the rabbit result? Now, you might say, well, it, it might still save your life. And for the short term, that's great. Of course, that's good that it saves lives. But for the long term, it's a disservice to medical science, maybe not medical practice, but medical science, such that we will learn less about the conditions, we'll learn less about the actual um, patterns that bring about those conditions, et cetera, et cetera. And so well, again, what about other sort of, non-medical uh, scenarios, uh, parole decisions, college admissions, HR decisions, yeah. hiring and firing? What do you see as the implications of your stance? Yeah, I think. And I should say we have a minute and a half left. Sorry. Yeah, no, no problem. So I think the implications are, are, are sociopolitical, right? The idea that for most intents and purposes, when something is being decided about our lives, we want to look at reasons why it was decided so. And we, why do we want to do that? Not always because we want to find errors, but sometimes because we just want to have the ability to challenge in case we don't agree with it, right? If those decisions about our freedoms or those decisions about our loans or those decisions about our application for university are given even through opaque methods, then we will never know exactly why the decision was arrived at, but also we won't ever be able to challenge it. And so we lose a little bit of agency, especially um, representative agency. We lose a little bit of power, especially political power, when we are faced with an unknowable kind of technology making decisions. Um, are enough people answer? who are building yeah. these algorithms thinking about what you think they should be thinking about? I think they are now, right? I think they are now. And I think we're, we're sort of getting at a, at, a, at a really good point where people are have been made aware unavoidably. So a lot of people, so for example, in my class, I teach 150 students this term in there are almost 90% of them are data science students. I'm a philosopher, I'm an ethicist, but they have to take this course as part of their major. So the, the, this initiative is like, in places like the University of Oregon are the ones that are helping to bring about this consciousness uh, that they, the developers, ought to be aware of these possible implications. Ramon Alvataro, thanks very much. I look forward to talking again. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Ramon Alvarado is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Oregon and an affiliate with the UO's Data Science Initiative. We end today on this Valentine's Day and on this birthday for Oregon with your Valentines for the people in your life. Here are some of the voicemails that you sent in. Hi, my name is Rakesh Gudavarti. This is to leave a Valentine message for my beautiful daughters. I have two of them. One is five and a half year old. Her name is Myra. And the other one is three months old. Her name is Reva. They have brought in a lot of joy and love to us. And we really love them a lot. So hoping to see a bright future for you. Hey, Dave. It's Jeff Cook in Portland. Having lost over the course of the last five years, three friends, ages 62, 59, and God forbid, 40. And having received their love over the years I knew them, I am now bereft, and I must send a valentine to myself in their name to remind myself of their love and what love really is. Hi, my name is Kara Shane Colley, and I'm calling from Goose Hollow in Portland. And I have two Valentines I'd like to send out. One is to Peyton Chapman. She is the principal at Lincoln High School. And I just think she is an amazing 
leader. She creates an incredible welcoming community. And I just think she's amazing. She needs to be saluted more. And my other Valentine is to Britta and Jim, who own the Northwest Hostel in uh, Northwest Portland. You know, Portland's going through some tough times. And their hostel, they just create a welcoming community atmosphere with good food, good drink, and music many nights of the week. And if you feel that there's kind of tough times out on the streets, sometimes you walk in their place and it's just, it's a welcoming, happy, safe place to be. This is Jane in Battleground. I feel love for so many people whose paths cross mine only once or only now and then. Sharing joy in some small event, practicing their skills, their healing arts, never forgotten. Friends for the moment, I'd like to send a valentine to each one of them. Hey, this is Alexander Curtis. I just wanted to wish my uh, newlywed, Elizabeth Curtis, happy Valentine's Day. She loves the uh, NPR station, and I love her. So have a great day. Thank you. Thanks to everyone who called in. Tomorrow on the show, for the 10th year in a row, Oregon State University has been named one of the top places in the country to get an undergraduate degree online. About three out of 10 OSU students are fully remote these days, and that number is expected to rise. We are going to ask why. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Steve and Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, and Michael, Kristen, Andrew, and Anna Kern.